welcome to A Correction Podcast. I'm your host, Lev Moscow. Today, I'm excited to be joined by Elisa Palagi, who's a PhD student in economics at the Santa Ana School of Advanced Studies in Pisa, Italy. So welcome to the show, Elisa. Hi, Lev. Thank you for uh, inviting me to your podcast. I'm very excited to talk today about the comeback of R is greater than G. You co-authored a paper with Roberto Icano, who's an associate professor of economics uh, and social policy at the Norwegian University of Science and Technology. And you wrote this paper about R is greater than G, the wealth and inequality. And I guess we can just start with R is greater than G. I first uh, became familiar with this idea from Piketty, from Piketty's Capital in the 21st Century, which was published um, in 2014. Is, is that where you first became acquainted with the, with the idea of R being greater than G and its predictive powers for helping us understand inequality? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, from a broader point of view, this study originates a bit from uh, yeah, a broad interest uh, on inequality, its determinants and consequences that it's at the center of my uh, PhD thesis. And of course, inequality along several dimensions is one of the main challenges of 21st century. And maybe we might discuss together afterwards uh, in more detail why it's important to study inequality. But with respect to your question, exactly. In the last years, there have been several studies investigating how uh, macro conditions, and in this case, the relation between the rate of return on aggregate wealth in the economy and the growth rate uh, of income in the economy might affect uh, uh, inequality dynamics. So yeah, in particular, since uh, Piketty's uh, Capital in the 21st Century book, which was, uh, which really uh, brought at the center of economics again, and uh, the public deba debates uh, the issue of inequality. So basically starting from this idea, we wonder, so what is this relation actually between these two important variables uh, the rate of return on wealth on the one hand are, and the growth rate of income on the other hand, what is the relation between these two important variables for different classes of individuals? So for instance, in our case, we look at uh, different individuals characterized by different levels of wealth. So yeah, so building on previous work, we that estimate more on the micro side, so more on the individual uh, point of view, uh, there are previous works investigate on the one hand how G is uh, for different types of individuals and how R is for different types of individuals. We put together all these ideas and we estimate these uh, difference R minus G for Norway. And yeah, we use Norway because it's a nice benchmark uh, country. It's a country characterized by low income inequality levels, uh, but at the same time by high wealth inequality levels. And furthermore, Norwegian data are really great and allow us to, to grasp some interesting uh, information. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. uh, before you get into your findings, I want to actually go back to a couple of things that you, you brought up. Yeah. Why is it so important to, to focus on inequality and you said that it, Piketty brought back inequality studies to the center of economics again. I take that to mean that it had been important in the past, but maybe it lost some of its importance. So maybe you could talk about that as well. Yeah, sure. Yeah, there have been some uh, some studies uh, 
uh, in the past, uh, starting from uh, the classics, uh, for which uh, income distribution was really at the center of, uh, of, uh, of economics. If you think about uh, Keynes, uh, uh, general theory, well, maybe Keynes didn't have uh, a inequality explicitly modeled uh, into his uh, general theory, but in the last chapter, that is chapter 24, and which is really nice to read, he underlines that uh, one of the big problems of society is uh, that uh, it might engender uh, a too high level of inequality. And so he discusses uh, what might be the, the possible policies to address inequality. And uh, so this is true for, for several classic uh, works and mm, several work in the 50s as well. But then, uh, yeah, in the, in the 80s, maybe there was, less, there was less attention to this kind of studies. For what concerns uh, why inequality is interesting to study and why we should care, why do we see inequality uh, as, a, as a challenge? Well, I think there are several, several reasons. Uh, first, of social mobility. So one of the typical justifications for the presence of high inequality was made with the argument for which, uh, okay, we need inequality because uh, in, the, in this way, people will uh, uh, make the maximum effort uh, and try to climb up the, the income uh, ladder, let's say. Uh, but actually, evidence does not support uh, this idea of the of the American dream that anyone can can get uh, anywhere. Uh, but actually, um, economies characterized by high levels of income inequality are also characterized by uh, low levels of social uh, mobility. So this justification for inequality, in particular for high inequality, of course, we're talking about uh, about high levels and not uh, low levels of inequality. Uh, so in this case, uh, it misses a bit, uh, a bit um, the point. And another uh, typical justification for the existence of uh, high inequality is that economists uh, uh, used to say that we needed some... Um, significant amount of inequality in order to have someone who would make the necessary investments uh, and then spur growth. But actually, uh, several studies from the IMF, for instance, uh, have recently found that uh, actually uh, a high level of inequality might uh, hurt uh, growth. And so also these macroeconomic consequences of inequality have to be taken into account and are really important. Uh, third, I think it's interesting also to consider political implications. There are uh, studies uh, looking at how higher inequality might lead to the emergence of, uh, of populism, for instance. That's why I, I see uh, inequality as a, as a major issue of our times. So to go back to Piketty again, his argument is that when the rate of return on wealth exceeds the rate of return on income, we get a society that is very unequal. Is that the argument, roughly? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's because uh, uh, when R is greater than G, wealth-rich individuals that uh, he calls also the, the rentier, uh, those would accumulate wealth faster than individuals that typically uh, have a low or negative uh, wealth 
or and, and mainly uh, rely on income. So so this would foster disparities in the longer run. Okay, and so and, you took these ideas to Norway and you were doing something a little bit different than what Piketty was looking at, right? So maybe you could explain to the audience one more time the difference between macro and micro and then what you found in Norway. Yeah, exactly. So uh, macro means that you look at these variables, the rate of return on wealth uh, from an aggregate perspective. So for the for the whole economy, and you do the same also for G, that is the growth rate of aggregate income. What we do is try to, with this Norwegian data, to look at uh, how uh, over the wealth distribution, so if you imagine ranking uh, people from the lower, uh, with the lowest wealth first, and then uh, those with the highest wealth uh, afterwards. What we find is that it's especially for wealth-rich uh, individuals that the rate of return on wealth uh, significantly exceeds the, the growth rate of income. So yeah, so that's exactly uh, the main finding and it's uh, roughly for the top 50% of the wealth distribution. Uh, this links to Piketty's result in his uh, in his book, for which uh, uh, if R exceeds G, then uh, um, this would foster uh, wealth disparities in the longer run. And so our result, by looking at the micro or individual level, implies that actually this kind of increasing spiral of inequality might be amplified by the fact that it's uh, wealth-rich individuals that are actually those for which, for which uh, this uh, R greater than G relation is uh, especially there, and for which this difference might be even higher than the one uh, overall in the economy. Very interesting. So just so that I get this clear, if I'm wealthier, I'm going to get a better rate of return than someone who is less wealthy on my capital. Um, that seems odd to me, right? Like, so what is it that the wealthy know that the rest of us don't know? Don't we all just put our money in, you know, the equivalent of the S&P? Yeah, that's it. Uh, that is really, really interesting. It's an interesting point. So again, uh, this is a fact that has been studied uh, also in other studies and by, by Piketty himself. And it's something that we, we also find in our, uh, in our study. And it's uh, the fact that there seems to be economies of scale, in a sense, in the management. So economists also say increasing returns to, to scale. And this means that if you have higher amount of uh, wealth, uh, just uh, really the very fact that you have higher amount of uh, starting wealth uh, leads to higher returns. And there are several reasons why this might be the case. Uh, uh, first of all, a person endowed with, uh, with high wealth uh, has greater means to, for instance, employ wealth management consultants, uh, financial advisors, and those might help uh, identifying better investments. And so if this is the case, uh, there are these economies of scale for which uh, uh, in management of wealth. And this implies that there are, there are higher average returns on larger portfolios. A second reason uh, is that uh, actually, if you start with a wealth that is quite high, it's easier to take on risks, to be patient and to start maybe 
I mean, to, to wait for the stock market returning to higher uh, levels uh, uh, with respect to a person that maybe do, does not have any additional uh, reserves, uh, extra savings to rely on as a, as a buffer stock. So there are several advantages of uh, uh, investing with high, with high levels of, uh, of wealth. What are the implications of this? So I think the implications uh, might be that, uh, um, first of all, it's important to take into account this, uh, this heterogeneity and the uh, uh, returns uh, on, on wealth uh, has to be considered as a, a potential factor for uh, enlarging wealth inequalities uh, in the future. There are solutions. It's not, uh, it's not that uh, it's something natural that cannot be stopped, let's say. And so there have been several proposals, several policy proposals. Um, for instance, uh, since in our study, we find that uh, higher returns uh, are correlated to having higher financial wealth uh, with respect to uh, housing wealth, as might be uh, expected. And uh, so one possible uh, policy uh, proposal that have been, has been put forth by several economies is that uh, either capital income uh, or wealth uh, might be an aggressive way to, uh, in order to stop a bit this uh, negative spiral of uh, increasing and increasing um, inequality. And there are several other policies as well. Yeah, maybe you could mention them as well. Yeah, sure. So, yeah, I was mentioning uh, progressive taxation on capital income. For instance, uh, in Norway, the current uh, uh, tax on capital incomes is basically a, a flat tax. It's a tax at a flat rate. Uh, and also wealth might be uh, taxed more progr progressively. Uh, another way is uh, maybe to uh, guarantee minimum returns uh, even to uh, investors that have uh, lower amounts. This is something that was put forth uh, by uh, Branko Milanovic in one of his uh, blog posts. Um, and another idea is, uh, for instance, uh, um, guaranteeing some kind of employee stock ownership uh, plans. Uh, and so um, having a more important involvement in general of workers as well in, uh, in the activities into um, firms. And actually, just a few days ago, uh, a paper by Saiz and Zuckman came out with a proposal on a global wealth tax on uh, corporations' uh, stock. And in this sense, it's interesting that uh, this Proposal entails a, a global tax and uh, that it's on stock ownership that is highly concentrated among the rich. Uh, and so that's the reason why this tax would be progressive. In addition to being global uh, and in order to have some kind of coordination of, uh, of these policies. All of those are very interesting. I, I hadn't heard this idea before of guaranteeing returns for people, but... Uh... Yeah, where would that come from? Would that come from redistributing the taxes that you take from the, the top returns and giving those to the investors at the bottom? Probably this could be this could be a way. Yeah. It's very interesting that that you say that Norway has not much income inequality, but lots of wealth 
inequality. And I understand living in the United States, what it's like to live in a society with lots of income inequality and lots of wealth inequality. And you can see the political consolidation of the, Piketty calls it the rentier class, and just how much control they have over the political system. I'm wondering if you see in the Scandinavian countries where they have, yeah, lower income inequality, but but high wealth inequality, what impact that has on, on the political situation. It's interesting, the debate going on uh, in, the, in the United States about uh, this issue. But I would say that in Norway, there's, there's more a uh, social uh, pact, let's say. And so these uh, low levels of, of income inequality um, maybe prevents in part this kind of, of dynamics. But of course, I, I'm not 100% sure. Yeah, no, and I'm, I'm sorry for asking to speculate on it. I've just been... I've been thinking about what impact the wealth concentration has, because, you know, when I think about the Scandinavian countries, I tend to think of them as having much more equality, but maybe that's only half true, right? It's true on the income side, but not necessarily the wealth side. So what what does that look like when you have relative equality income-wise, but not in terms of wealth? But I'm just, you know, I'm just wondering it aloud. Yeah, yeah. I'm also reasoning loud and uh, I'm thinking that actually wealth inequality in uh, in Norway is also partly due actually to a high level of indebtedness of the middle class as well. So basically in Norway, there are some uh, tax credits, for instance, uh, if you have a mortgage. And so you in, in a sense, it's convenient for you to take on a mortgage and pay and pay the mortgage, uh, and you will pay less uh, in tax. And of course, this is backed also by uh, high income levels that that allow such uh, such a high level of indebtedness. This, in part, increases maybe wealth inequality because maybe at the top, uh, uh, this high level of indebtedness is not uh, present. So. Uh, actually, wealth overall all, uh, is uh, appears to be very concentrated. Mm-hmm. I yeah. see that makes that makes a lot of sense. I'd always wondered about Piketty's R being greater than G, and what was new about that, because it seemed to me that you know that's kind of what Marx was describing in the middle of the 19th century. So I'm wondering if you can enlighten me. Is he saying, you know, basically? R is normally greater than G, but then there is a short period in you know the, the, the post-war period in the West when that's not true, and then it becomes true again in, in the 1980s. What is new about this idea that R being greater than G leads to uh, growing inequality? I think what is a big contribution of Piketty's work is, of course, uh, from a data point of view. Because, uh, of course, uh, at the time of Marx, data availability was not that, uh, that uh, widespread, <laughs> let's say. And, uh, and so uh, Piketty did this uh, great job of, uh, uh, and his team of, uh, of collecting all the, uh, all the information and data about uh, inequality, about uh, RNG also, from, uh, so firstly from a macro perspective. And uh, actually, there have been some other studies, uh, for instance, uh, the one named the rate of return on, uh, on everything that uh, actually confirms that uh, R is greater than G uh, from a macro perspective. And actually, maybe the picture is even worse than what uh, was presented in, uh, in Piketty's uh, work. Uh, 
the nice thing about that book was uh, to put all the different arguments uh, together about uh, uh, inequality, why we see this increase in inequality in the last decades, and uh, and also the great uh, data work that was done. I am teaching now a 12th grade econ class, and we are paying great attention to the the Fed, our, our central bank's loose monetary policy and the the apparent sort of dovishness of, of Jerome Powell. And, and we're comparing that to the, the, the previous chair people of the Fed, going back to Volcker. Then we're looking at Biden and his huge uh, budget proposals. And then I was reading today that the IMF is urging countries to, to spend, spend, spend right now and do anything you can to fight COVID and to stimulate the economies. And so taken together, it feels like, and I'm, I don't know because I'm, I'm not an expert like you are in this, but it feels like we're maybe experiencing a paradigm shift, a shift that, you know, a, a world that I, I'm 41 years old, a world that I've never lived in before, where we're having loose monetary policy. The IMF is saying, it's okay to spend and, and austerity may not be the, the, the only way forward. And someone like Biden, who was a moderate, a political moderate for most of his career, suddenly acting like um, Bernie Sanders. And so I'm wondering whether or not you would agree with that description of, of where we are. Yeah, actually, it's a, it's a really interesting uh, question. And also from my point of view, uh, we are at a sort of, as you're saying, uh, kind of paradigm shift, especially in the US, I would say, yeah. So uh, it seems that uh, um, people have started like learn the lesson from the 2008 financial crisis, also learning the lessons from the failures of in a way. And so, yeah, and so there is this big, uh, this big policies, uh, especially in the U US and these, uh, these plans that are quite uh, different from uh, from previous uh, years uh, discussions maybe no and so also in the eu there is a, there is some sign for uh, some more collaboration for instance between countries and uh, with the recovery fund and so let's see what happens it, it will be interesting to to see what happens but uh, i think that there is some more understanding that uh, the, the times we're facing need some bold uh, actions. And then, Elisa, sorry, this really is the last question. What <laughs> non-academic books, and maybe, maybe you can give us one or two books, should lay people read, should non-academics read if they want to better understand the work that you're doing and the work that other economists are doing around wealth and income inequality? So for sure, I would suggest uh, uh, Piketty's uh, Capital in the 21st uh, Century, even if it was written some years ago, I think it's really a nice introduction to the topic of uh, inequality, uh, both for uh, who's interested in the topic in general and for students studying, uh, uh, studying uh, economics. Um, and so I would also um, suggest uh, Global uh, Inequality by Branko Milanovic. I think this is also a very nice book uh, in which uh, several uh, uh, ideas uh, are presented and several 
empirical uh, empirical facts uh, that might be nice to think about in order to reason about inequality and to learn more about uh, what's happening in the world.